the most important thing you can do for the mother of your child is figure out how to get her some time alone, right, with a newborn. Like, that's that's really, like... It's a huge thing to do, yeah. I mean, like, if you can prepare meals for, for her, you can do all those things, that's great. But really, if you can find... Um, the mother of your child a few like an hour two hours where she isn't this thing isn't like completely stuck to her sure um, th- that's like the I don't try to give anybody any parental advice but that's the only thing I, I tell I tell dads fathers it's like when you can take that kid away like out of the building for your wife do it man do it and 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 would a, you, go to, you would go to some and so would you take so your... i would take our newborn and i would i would i would you know it was after a long day of work and i was definitely not ready to go home like in the old days i'd come home my wife would be asleep i'd put on the tv i'd drink half a bottle of rosé sure i'd watch sports center till my eyes bled and i'd go to sleep you know rinse repeat and that now it was actually great for me because I'd get up, I'd go for a little bit of a walk, regardless. Like I'm not a guy that's affected by the weather or the conditions of the weather. Like pouring rain, I've got that covered. Driving snow, I've got that outfit. I'm I'm fine with the elements. Yeah, good to go. Um, I had this crazy rig that I would put our kid in the stroller, and I'd put on this rubber suit, and I would walk in the in a nor'easter. I'd take our kid for a stroll, and it was great because there's nobody out. And and I'm just pushing a stroller that's but completely this wrapped in, the in morning? plastic. Is this two in the morning? Yeah, it's two in the morning. So then I'm I'm. Are you WD fifty or Alder? Yeah, like w, WD fifty. By by the time Alder came, Alder, <laughs> I opened Alder right at the, at the birth of our second child. So that's another bad mistake uh, that we Opening can talk about. Opening a restaurant when your child, yeah, when you're your having second child, yeah, born. yeah. But I would uh, I would put my kid on. I would just wear, you know, and I and I'd walk around the block a couple of times, and and it was great for me and great for her. Like I felt like I was. Making a connection, and this is the year Sambar was like on the brink, right? It was when it opened. Yeah, that first year when it almost David Chang Sambar almost collapsed his empire as it was building, right? Because it started selling burritos, which I was there for too, and I was like, "Wow, what's going on here? This is not okay." Sure, I'm in, whatever, and they didn't work, and he flipped it, you know, and he and 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 Tin and and all those guys, um, Joaquin Baca, you know, all those they, they 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 flipped it into something magnificent. But I used to go and sit at the bar all the time. And I just put my kid on, and they let me have a cocktail. And I was like, you know, I'm if it makes a it makes a peep. She makes a peep. I'm out. Cash on the table. Big tip. I go. Don't worry. No screaming babies. Because a lot of places, there's bars that I won't go back to in my neighborhood. Because once they figured out I had a kid, they asked me to get up and leave. And I was like, but nothing's happened here. No one's complained. You just realized I'm wearing a baby. And they said, well, but, but I said, but what? Like, I'm in the industry. You oh, know yeah, who you I am. I, oh, they knew you. You know they knew who, who I you am. Were, like, yeah. I didn't roll in and go, hey, you know who I am. But now we both know who I am. And I'm not going to act like, can I say asshole? I'm not going to act like an asshole. Yeah. So don't you act like one. Like, if if my baby makes a peep, cash on the table, big fat tip, and I'm and out I'm the out door. And I'm out the door, yeah. No problem. 100%. And there were places that were like, you got to go right now. And I was like, okay. No problem. At like, also, you're coming home from work, so you're talking about one thirty-two in the morning. Yeah, I'm not rolling into a bar on a Friday night at like eight o'clock looking for a yeah. seat at the bar with my big fat belly. No, and it's like, come on, guys. Like, I know how to act. There's a lot of things I don't do right, but I act right in restaurants and bars. Yes, but but what we were talking about, and I I love that story, and I used to bring my kids into a lot of places under the same exact terms. I can't. It's a, a real similarity. Like my, I brought my son everywhere when he was little, and um, would always say like don't worry you're gonna see this is all gonna be fine and if it's not i had the exact same thing if it's not don't worry i'm before you notice i'll notice yeah i'm wearing it it's breathing on me like it's gonna make a noise or it's gonna do something like i'm not gonna change it on the bar table because it drives me crazy when parent when parents uh, don't understand that 
I, I love it. They'll bring their kid someplace. But like if I'm in a movie, like bring your kid for sure. But but also the moment that your kid ruins everybody else's experience, do the right thing. Yes, but let me bring my newborn into your establishment and you have me for life as a customer. Totally. Hospitality, man. Like that's what we do. You let me come in from the storm. You give me like comfort when in a time when everybody's life is frazzled and... And I'm yours forever. And I'll tell everyone to go. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is genius chef Wiley Dufresne. Uh, we started by talking about David Chang's restaurants. Both of us were early, early um, enthusiasts of his restaurants. And Wiley was saying he would go in. He famously, Chang talks about that Wiley and Wiley's team were very early and constant supporters. And you spread the word, right, about yeah, I Noodle truth Bar. be told, I live across the street from Sambar when it opened. So um, I, I did go to Noodle Bar a lot, but I really, um, I, I held the Sambar torch high and loud because uh, I, I, it was, at, at the time, it was almost the closest restaurant to my home. But what you're saying about service and about the restaurant recognizing, instead of having some blanket policy, but taking you as you are, and if you're great, treating you great, and if you're shitty, treating you shitty is perfectly fine and they can have a customer for life. Raising kids in New York City is fascinating in lots of different ways, as you're, you've done and you're doing. And one of the things And is, was raised. Right. I th- you were raised in New York City. But I then was. when did you go to Rhode Island? Uh, I was born in Rhode Island, and I moved to New York when I was about seven. So you know what it's like to walk the city and find places and be with your friends at 11 or 12. But my son would wander into Noodle Bar with his friends when he was very young. And they were amazing to him if he kept them if he treated himself well and they each wanted just to get like a pork bun because they just had a, it was all great and he's got fans you know dave's got fans for life because of that well yeah i mean that's the way it should be right i mean that's th- those are important important moments and opportunities you know and and why not take advantage of that and like i said there are bars that i'm not interested in naming publicly but i will not go back to you know because they asked me to leave when i had my kid with me my, my, my newborn, not my kid. I didn't roll in with my six-year-old and so she could eat some peanuts while I had a couple martinis. No, I'm not right. crazy. You can't break the law. No, you no. can't break the law at the bar. No, no. And I, that's what I mean. Like, come on. I know, I know what's up. Although some of my best, and then we're going to get off this, some of my best times in, in my whole life were when my dad, my dad was in the music business and he would go see bands late at night and sometimes I would, he would let me roll with him and I knew the rules. And some of the greatest nights are if, you're, if you are 10 or 11 and somehow you're in a place like that yeah, of and course. it's midnight, when you know Glenn Campbell's uh, bass player's other band is playing a gig, it is an amazing thing to be a kid in Manhattan. All right, I'm going to start the actual show now. So, uh, Wiley, man, before we met, I, I, I was a, a huge fan and admirer of yours and um, your entire approach to food. And I'm not going to use the dreaded MG to talk about it. But what I am going to talk about, because I, who cares? But what is really fascinating to me, and I always noticed was it, it seems to me that your whole career is marked by your curiosity. Like, you yes. notice a question hasn't been asked, then you ask it, then you really chase down the answer. And I'm wondering if you remember noticing this was something different about you when you were young. Um, I, I don't necessarily have that type of memory, but I have memories of being young and being encouraged by my parents to ask questions. This is what I want to know. I... I uh, I, I remember clearly my parents telling me that it's okay to wonder. It's okay to be curious. My parents were both and are both very interesting and interested people. Um, you know, 
my yearbook, you know, you, you, you take out in your, your senior yearbook, you know, you have the opportunity for your parents to take an ad out, right, in, in the back because you need money. And my parents took out a page. My parents were divorced, um, but they each took out half a page. And my mom, cool mom that she was, knew that I was in The Grateful Dead, put together a bunch of lyrics from the song Cassidy that were relevant to like sort of going out in the world and, and finding your place. And as a son, as a kid, I was like, that's so cool that my mom did that. And my dad just put make a difference. That's all he said. And, and they were both telling me the same thing in very different ways, but they're both saying the same thing. Like go find your place in the world, go decide who you are and, and try to make a difference, you know, just, and, and that's all it's ever been is like, we're not, we're just trying to leave this culinary landscape a little bit better than we found it. With the, with the huge asterisk that we didn't find it in, in disarray, but we're just trying to add to the conversation. We're going to add to the dialogue. We're trying to leave it a little bit better. So, yes, I'm curious, and I've been encouraged to be annoyingly curious well, yeah. by my parents, much to the detriment of my staff's mental health. You know? Well, yeah, at the time, what did you... What did you think you were going to sort of prosecute with that curiosity when you were young? Were you an excellent student? Were there teachers who, if they weren't teaching by rote, ah, I'm really interested in them. But if someone, like, how did you... No, I was in a, I was, I was a, I graduated college with a C plus average. I was not a, uh, I was always curious, but I didn't, I hadn't found it. I hadn't found my thing. Um, did and you know you were bright? Uh, no, I'm still not sure about that. Um, <laughs> But I, I, the thing was, is after, you know, 16 years of, of formal education, I finally happened upon cooking. At that point, I had learned how to learn. I'd learned how to apply myself. I just hadn't found something to apply myself to that moved me. And so when I got to cooking, I was able to take this, this process that I'd learned about how to, whatever the subject matter was, was how to attack it. And, and, and try to, to learn more about it and, and bring an analytical mind to it, approach to it. That's what we did. But I have, you know, people are always like, oh, were you like a big science guy or this or that? Because, you know, the scientific method is something we talk a lot about. No, I was a horrible science student, a horrible math student. I was, I was good at humanities. I could read Homer and figure out what he was trying to tell me. Sure. I have a degree in philosophy, which doesn't seem... No, it totally makes... Of course it makes sense because you're deconstructing things. Well, you're, maybe. You're, you're getting to the... Yes, um, if I had to guess, I wouldn't have guessed the sciences. I would have guessed something, this sort of area of exploration. Um, uh, you being able to understand um, a long Greek poem makes total sense to me, and being able to tear that apart and understand it, right? Yeah. An epic poem. Maybe. I mean, you were, you were doing that. You're ta I mean, whatever, the tasting menus were that, right? They, you were taking people on some sort of a journey, and you were getting to the essence of things. I don't want to jump ahead, but you... you Oh, I mean, I think ultimately you came back to a philosophical place. Well, I think that, the, again, all of the things and approaches and ways, the things I found interesting in school uh, and, and that were impression, that left an impression on me have, have found their way into my, hopefully into the culture that I've created, the restaurant culture that I've tried to create and, and the approach that I've tried to, to have, even in making donuts, you know? It, it's not, it hasn't gone away. Yeah, Dew's Donuts is the, is the donut uh, empire that you're building. It's our current two. project. It's our one one donut shop. The pop up is now closed, so we went yeah. from one to two back to one. So Do's Donuts, which is your new uh, venture, not so new now, but a great thing. And I know there's some exciting things in store in the future um, that we're not allowed to talk about yet. But um, I have great hopes for where that's um, all going to go. But 
I want to stay here for one second about this curiosity thing because you said you were a C-plus student. And did you give a shit about school? Did you care? Did you think it was any judgment on yourself? And I ask because a lot of people who are C-plus students are made to feel dumb by the people around them or made to feel like um, it's some kind of a judgment. And you said, well, I just hadn't found the thing I loved yet. Then you found the thing you loved and you became a leader in your field. Was that a surprise? Was it a surprise to you that you could, or, or did you retain some kind of confidence in yourself? And if so, how? I, you know, it didn't bother me when I did, because I, you know, my parents were the kind of parents who were like, if you don't want to do your homework, don't do your homework, but don't wonder why you got a D. <laughs> that's really smart. You know, if you don't want to do it, don't, but that's on you. Um, you know, I was the only kid in my high school class, senior year, who didn't take, that I, that I know of at least, that didn't do any sort of SAT prep or anything like that, and I just took the test. And then, you know, everybody takes it twice because your score is always better the second time. Mine went down. <laughs> no, really? Yeah, I, I went from like a 1050 to That's like a really... 980, neither of which are good scores, you know? That's hilarious. They're horrible scores. Um but it didn't, no, I, I didn't believe that, that these were, even then, I didn't feel like these were things that were sort of that interesting or compelling to me. And, and I hoped that they weren't going to matter or be applicable to where my life was going to go, even though I didn't know at that time where my life was going to go. Um, so I, I, it didn't bother me, you know, I mean, not that it mattered, but I finished second in my class in culinary school, you know, to a housewife from Connecticut. But I, I, I was leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. You, you, you know what yeah, I mean? Once you found the thing that you dug. Yeah, and I, and I was so green when I started culinary school, but I still was like immediately rocketed to the front um, because I was applying myself because I loved it, because I was fascinated by it. And yeah. I, like I said, I felt like I had a certain advantage with formal education. You learn how to learn. So you just have to figure out what it is you like, and you take this whole sort of structure of how to get more knowledge, and it's just like plug and play. And I was like, boom. Uh, this sounds a little like uh, Ivan Orkin's story, which was, you know, Ivan, too, had, was kind of like school adrift. And then he found this after he had an after school job where these guys made him uh, on Seneg on top of rice. And he was just like, holy fuck, am I, all, I understand everything yeah. now. It was like in a moment of a, a blinding moment of clarity. What was the first thing that you ate? Do you remember that where you were like, oh, did or did you always like what? How did it how did the light come on for you? Well, it, for me, it was about sports. I would love to have been a professional athlete, but as you can see, what sport? Well, I mean, baseball was like my, my real, my real passion. Um, but as you can see, all of you listeners, I possess zero, phys, you know, and it's physical traits that are in any way special in any shape. I'm like, I'm the average height of the American male. Um, Carly Kloss was on. Uh, uh, Fallon last night and yeah. my wife and I were watching she's like wow, wow she's really tall she's 6'2 my wife says and are, you're 6 feet right I was like no I'm 5'10 and 3 quarters she's like you're you're super average you know like I'm, yeah. the, I'm the average height of the American male I'm not fast uh, I'm not I mean I'm, I'm I'm strong enough like I don't there's nothing about me that says you know, I don't have the forearms of Popeye there's nothing about me that says I'm gonna play Major League Baseball I went to a Quaker high school, not a rich athletic program. I went you, to Quaker you know. high school too. I mean, perfectly good, and and all the le life lessons you should get from sports. But but anyway, that wasn't going to happen. But I I love 
team sports. I didn't play a lot of individual sports growing up. I always played team sports and I, and I loved it. I loved it to death. I played sports as much as I could. And again, I was okay at it, but, but it wasn't for lack of trying or lack of enjoyment. What were the varsity sports you played at? You went to, I went um, to friends, New York city. Yeah. Friends. Friends. So I played, I went to long Island friends. So, well, there you go. So, you know, we played soccer, uh, basketball, and back then it was softball. So again, what are my chances of making the major leagues when I was a standout softball player? <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty well, bad. Pretty bad. Like you know, um, my school now has a hardball team, but even then we didn't play hardball. We played fast pitch softball. You could have made it onto that team of those three guys who would always once, you know, that three man softball team that yeah. used to try to strike out Johnny Bench. Exactly. Well, I was really good at softball, but who guys. cares, right? That doesn't add up to anything. Two listeners are shouting the name of that three man team right now, <laughs> but we can't hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah. My glory days of like going to practice and knocking all of the balls into the East River so we couldn't practice anymore. Like, those are glory days, like, really. You still like, seem kind of proud of them, though. Well, it's a hilarious moment that I still get shit from from my friends occasionally. Like, we couldn't practice because you put all the balls in the water. But, so you saw that wasn't going to be your last No, so that wasn't going to be, but but one, I, I, I spent uh, the summer between, I worked, I've been working in a restaurant since, I, food service since I was 11. Um, but the summer before my senior year of college, I had a job working at Al Forno's in Providence, Rhode Island, which, at the, which is a two-story probably the best restaurant in Rhode Island, arguably one of the best restaurants in New England. At the time, um, George and Joanne, George just recently passed away, but George and Joanne, the famous chefs that own the place, actually worked for my father. They met working in his restaurant. So they were kind enough to give me a job that I had no business having for the summer. And that summer, um, I it was the first time I was like, okay, wait a minute. This I'm playing a team sport. I'm coming in. My hands hurt. My back hurts. Uh, I'm anxious. There's, we're going to do prep all day long. It's like practice. We're going to have dinner service. It's like playing the game. There's a there's a coach. It's the chef. There's a sous chef. He's the captain. There's role players. There's all these... It, it, like, holy shit, this is a sport. I'm playing a sport. And all the emotions, all the things that I felt, all the joy I found in pushing myself physically and being part of a team and having a goal and failing. And, and the thing that I love about sports, too, is like it's redemption at every turn. You missed a layup, well, you'd make the next one. You know, you overcooked a steak or you screwed this up. You're going to have to do it again all night long, so don't get stuck on it. Go forward. Keep moving. And and I, I just was like, instantly, I was like, I, this is what I, you know, it's the time before senior year. You're supposed to think about what you want to do next. Um, and I was really into skiing, so I thought I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to be a ski bum for a year, and I'm going to go find somebody. I, I can't afford to go to culinary school just going to take one last little bit of being a dum-dum. I'm going to go be a ski bum. I was going to move to Steamboat with my roommate. Um, and then I was going to go find a chef that I'd work for free at the very bottom and just work my way up. Um, and my, I blew out my knee senior year skiing. And my mother said, like, I had literally almost had my car packed. She's like, if you don't go, because she definitely didn't want me to go, yeah, I'll help you with culinary school. So it was like, all right. So I was able to go to culinary school three months after I graduated college with the help of my mom. And then uh, I still haven't gone skiing since. I have a pair of skis I bought that winter that are still awesome. untouched. There are better skis now, probably. <laughs> I don't ski anymore. I haven't skied in a long, long 20 years or something. All right. So I've been asked to do an ad for Billions, which is really exciting to me. I can't imagine an ad that I would be more enthusiastic about unless it were an ad for my own children. Uh, so 
Billions is the show on Showtime created by David Levine, Andrew Sorkin, and me. Uh, David Levine and I are the showrunners, and uh, it stars Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Malin Ackerman, Maggie Siff, Asia Kate Dillon, Jeffrey DeMunn, Condola Rashad, Toby Leonard Moore, and as Michael Wags Wagner, Dave Costable. Look, it's been the most rewarding work of my career seeing the way people have responded to this thing that uh, Dave and I have just worked uh, so tirelessly on. But our our crew works even more tirelessly, and uh, these actors are the most prepared, focused, and brilliant with whom we've ever had the opportunity to work. The show's on 10 o'clock Sunday nights on Showtime. You can also watch it on Showtime anytime. And uh, look, the premiere is March 25th, and I really want you to come out. But here's the thing, even if you don't have Showtime, my listeners can get an extended 30-day free trial to catch up on the first two seasons by entering the code MOMENT at GetShowtime.com. The offer expires April 15th, so download the app today. Like, do this now. Because, look, if you're listening to this podcast, I get it, the podcast free, Showtime's not free, but I don't really think you can understand the stuff I talk about on the podcast when I'm talking about my own career without a little bit understanding the fruits of it, which is the show that we make. And um, it's billions. It's on Showtime, 10 o'clock, 9 central, Sunday nights, starting March 25th. GetShowtime.com. Enter the code MOMENT. It's billions. What was your dad's restaurant? Uh, He had a restaurant... In Rhode, he had a couple restaurants in Providence, Rhode Island called Joe's. One was called Joe's. It was a sandwich shop. One was called Joe's Upstairs. And, um, and he was living in Rhode Island. You were living in New York? Well, my parents separated around when I was seven. And then my mom came to my mom and I moved to New York. And then my dad moved shortly afterwards. His restaurants uh, closed and he came to New York and continued to be in the food service business to this very day. And does he still have the sandwich shop that he uh, He's got Biggie sandwiches down on Lower East Side. Shameless plug. Please go. They're good sandwiches. I got They're the great day sandwiches. they opened. I, the, the day he opened, I was like, I have to try this. They're great the, sandwiches. Sort of really good. Legend of the sandwiches. So, um, were you a food guy though? You loved team sports and stuff. You didn't though open just like an average. You would think somebody who like loved team sports would uh, open a bunch of sub shops or would open. You know what I mean? You ended up doing it. Not there's anything wrong with. I mean, a great sub shop is the first time I went to Potbelly's in Chicago before it became just a franchise. I lost my mind. Like a great sub shop's a real thing, but um, what happened that made you you really light up about food itself? That sparked your the kind of level of curiosity and engagement that you had. Because for people who don't know, I mean, you're one of like five people who changed the way. Um, chefs thought about food you know you changed uh th- like that that book that nathan mirvold had come out would never exist if it weren't for you right so h- how yeah, i mean you and adria maybe there were like five guys i mean I'm and like, women five men and women but i mean what happened that started you really on that on that course um well i was looking for answers to questions i mean that type of cooking i guess i mean i i i was going uh I was going to culinary school, and then I and then I worked uh, for Alfred Portali at the Gotham Bar and Grill for about 14 months, and then my knee finally, from that injury in college, my knee finally said enough, and I had to get surgery on my knee. 
So I was, you know, surgery now that would probably keep you out for a month, kept me down for six months. And during those six months, I was looking at different places I wanted to go and work. And I found, I came across John George's Simple Cuisine Cookbook. And it kind of was like, wait a minute, here's a guy who's, at the time back then, you know, you're talking 93, France was still, still like, if you wanted to be a serious cook in America, you had to either go work in France or work for the French guys here in New York. Um, and so that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I wanted to work for the best. So, and John George was the one guy who was doing something really interesting. Because Pino Luongo was like the restaurant. I mean, if you wanted to know what New York was like, then it was like Pino Luongo was like the, the had like the po- the popular sort of. Yeah, those were all Italian. Those Italian were all really, restaurants, but yeah. really good, really great, great Italian restaurants. Uh, you know, super, super Italian restaurants. And, and I'm not trying to in any way denigrate that side. But, but from, that's what New York was. I'm just saying Gotham was like a very big jump. Gotham was the Americans finally saying, well, okay, it's our turn at bat. Um, you know, and you had Alfred and, and a number of other guys. Um, you know, you had Boulay back then doing something sure. as well. And, um, and Boulay was, was on my list of places that I wanted to go to. Um, but I went to, I went and, 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 and spent some time, I spent a day at Jojo's and I was hooked. I had the book. John George's restaurant. Yeah. yeah. John George's restaurant, his, his, his original restaurant, his very first New York restaurant that he owned. Um, and I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I still have that book completely memorized. I can tell you everything that's in that cookbook, Simple Cuisine. And then I went there and I saw it and I was like, this is what I want to do. This is a guy who's looking at a classic cuisine through his own lens and he's changing it in smart ways in interesting ways. And, and back to, you know, make a difference. That's what he's doing. He's taking something and he's leaving it better than he found it. Again, not that it was broken, but he's marching it down the road in a way that was really interesting. And so that's all I wanted to do was find a way that I could be additive to the dialogue and march it down the road. And Consciously? Then- you like had that conscious thought? Because like, I guess the question about the food thing, the first amazing thing you remember eating was like, like I watched movies the probably the way you ate like I liked them I loved going to the, like I loved going to the movies it was like a great fun thing to do but then I saw she's got to have it in raising Arizona in the same year and I realized people make these things people write these things wait hold on no one ever said something the way those characters say those things I was the right age for it I was like that's hold on and like my life like my world kind of spun. Do you know what I mean? So it was Jean George the thing where it started spinning for you in a different way. It was the way? thing where it started spinning, where I was, where I was seeing that it was okay to think differently, and that and, and to ask questions, and to, you know, because before there were, there's a there's an inherent problem in this in the culinary education that we all have, and that's really what what WD, the end of 71 Clinton became and the beginning and was WD-50's life was a place where, where I could continue my culinary education, where my staff could continue their culinary education, where the customers, if they wanted, could t- continue their culinary education. Because up until a certain point, up until about 35 years ago, it was like, well, okay, this is how you roast a chicken, kid. Okay, no pro- Yes, chef. Well, why are we doing it like this? First of all, don't even ask that question. The answer is because I said so. Um, oh, I hate that top-down learning thing. Yeah, yeah. why are we doing like this? Well, because it's always worked like that, um, or or because I said so. And and like, in a way, for a young cook, it's like the military, right? Like, just do it like that. How come? Just fucking do it like that for now, okay? It's nine o'clock. We're busy. Do it like that. And 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 that's actually good. Like, you need to learn your place yeah, and when to ask, ask questions. You about that. And that's important. But then you get to a point, you know, where where you're you're a little bit more. 
useful in the kitchen and it's okay to ask these questions. And it turns out that there really are no answers and that it, it's like we all knew how to roast a chicken or make a sauce or make pasta. We knew how to do things, but nobody knew why. Right. So like Roger Verger would train all these chefs, right? They would go to his restaurant. What was his restaurant in France called? It was uh, well, Verger. I mean, yeah, he had a great restaurant in France, and had like one of these <laughs> where it was like supposedly the best for a long time. People would say, "Oh, that's the best roast chicken." But you're saying he might not have even understood why. A hundred percent, he didn't understand why. He knew how to do it, and he knew how to do it in such a way that he got the same results. But he couldn't explain to you what was happening to a chicken as it roasts. And so the knowledge that we all had, even work going to culinary school, even working for great chefs, was empty. It was like I stood on a box, but the box was hollow. It wasn't solid. And so I was like, wait a minute. If I do something 100 times and 99 times, it comes out right. And on the 100th time, it doesn't. And I don't know why, because I was following the directions. But the directions aren't, aren't really full. They're, they're empty. So I wanted to create a place where we could ask more questions and say, well, what's happening to our food as we cook it? What is cooking? First of all, what is cooking? Well, it turns out that cooking is many things, but it's a science. Well, what science is it? Well, there's some physics. There's certainly some biology, but it's mostly chemistry, right? It's sure, mostly chemistry. Chemical there's chemical reactions. reactions all day long. You know, like when you when you sear a steak, there's proteins and sugars, and they're caramelizing and flavor. I mean, there's so many cool things that are happening. But but there's no and, and there's never a right or wrong way to poach an egg or roast a chicken or or cook a fish. But there's a more or less informed way to do that. There's a way to understand that if I turn the knob three clicks to the right or five clicks to the left, this is what's going to happen. One is not right and the other is not wrong, but this is how the end result is going to change. And so we began to like literally chart what was happening as we cooked an egg at this temperature for this amount of time. Or we, be, we tried to look and see what sort of prior history on this type of stuff was there. And again, it turns out that there wasn't much. Hence the, the dirty word molecular gastronomy. All that was out there. Let, let the record state. You used the term and I didn't. Right. Because it was a bunch of scientists. It is a field of scientific study that it was a term coined by scientists to describe the scientific work that they were doing. It happens to be infinitely useful to the chef community, but I am no more a molecular gastronomist than the scientist is a chef. Right, well, it, right. whether you'd uh, apply techniques that those people help discover or not doesn't mean you're that that's what you're doing. Because you are still trying to serve delicious and amazing food that would blow people's minds. Right, but they're just providing information. Information sure. that's equally useful to the bistro chef on the corner who wants a, a moist roast chicken and bright green green beans and smooth mashed potatoes and a Bernays that won't separate. As it is to a guy like me who wants to figure out how to deep fry hollandaise. Well, the home cook who can't, the home cook who's like, um, you, you probably can't meet anybody who likes pancakes more than I do. Like, you've never met anyone who likes a pancake more than I do. I have a really good pancake and recipe. it's like impossible to cook pancakes well where the pan stays the right, you know, I have no idea why sometimes you nail it and sometimes you don't. You know exactly why, right? Well, I, I know more than you do like about about sure. how, how to make a good pancake, but that's because and, and and a lot of the listeners are rolling their eyes saying it's pancakes, dude, lighten up. And I was like, well, but no, okay. but a lot of people want to know how to make the perfectly, you know, where it's got just the right amount of crispness and moistness, and it's not neither too dry nor <laughs> too wet in the middle, but exactly right. And or just like even on the top, right? Yeah, like that'd be here's great. here's my one trick to everybody at home making pancakes: don't put any butter in the pan. What should you do? Cook it in a dry pan. 
Cook it in a Teflon pan and your pancake will be golden brown end to end. As soon as there's butter, you start to get that mottled effect on the top. Bisquick, right? Look on the bo- on the jar, on the on the can, the bottle. It's beautiful pancakes, golden brown, end to end. Dry pan. Just put it in a dry pan. Get a Teflon pan and make your pancakes in a, in a square Teflon pan if you can. Or like your grandma's griddle that she used to put on the counter. That's the best a thing cast, for pancakes. cast iron? No, the plug-in griddle. Oh, the, you know yeah, that your sure. grandmother used to cook her bacon on the counter with. Yeah. Make your pancakes on that. There's 20 bucks on Amazon. Buy, buy three of them. Take them on vacation with you. They're the best. The best. All right. That's we've already gotten a lot of value out of this uh, podcast because we now know how to not. And what temperature are we cooking them at? The pancakes? Yeah, like on a pan. If you use a Teflon pan, how high a flame? Really low. And put it on. Put it on that pan. And and before you make your pancake batter, set the pan on the stove so that by the time you make your 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 batter's ready, your pan's hot, and that pan will stay hot on a very low setting. Yeah, m- medium low. Yeah. I've I've learned something. It doesn't. It's a try. pancake. It's super delicate. It doesn't need high heat. Yeah. All right. Good. This is great. Most people, I you know, I I, I like to joke a lot. Like you know, we I definitely this, make the butter mistake. Hundred percent. And I joke all the time with everybody from my staff to to anyone. I'm like, you know, we got the stoves with the adjustable knobs. We 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 paid for the <laughs> the fancy one. Yeah. The flame's adjustable. It doesn't have to be on all the way. You know, most people are cooking food too hard. Nothing should boil. Ever. In a kitchen, except for water. Nothing. Nothing should boil. Not a thing. I mean, I was, oh, I'm reducing the sauce. I'm going to reduce the... Okay, fine. You're reducing yeah, the sauce. Uh, hey, don't man, if, a... I don't know how to, if I don't know how to cook pancakes right, I'm not reducing a fucking sauce. So for me... But I'm just saying nothing me, should boil. Sure. Nothing should boil. The heat's too high if it's boiling. If you're, if you're poaching something, anything, it shouldn't be boiling. You're destroying it. You're killing it. Even pasta doesn't need to be in boiling water to actually hydrate. But that's getting you're getting kind of complicated there, and and no, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this, and then we're gonna go back to the regular scheduled stuff. Because uh, how should pasta you shouldn't cook in boiling water? You can, but you don't have to. Well, what should you do? Well, but it, the starch will will become solid. The, the starch will cook. The pasta will cook, quote unquote, air quotes, cook at like 180 degrees, so it doesn't have to be boiling. So you know, how many times you've boiled the pasta water over on the stove? Probably every other time. It's happened. It's happened. So just turn the pot, turn it down. It doesn't have to. It's gonna cook. I promise. So yeah, this is amazing. And, and Wiley talks about a lot of this stuff in his book. And what's the name of your book? WD fifty, the cookbook. It, it's, and it's, it was about that that time and place. And it's about how you figured a lot of this stuff out. And it's about the salute, the things that you did figure out. And it's a a way people because I have two copies of the book. And um, oh, I gave one to somebody. You. It was really my love letter to the people and the place. Um, you know, it was my way of saying thank you. To the place in it is our methodology and our methodology and our approach and our thought process and all these things and a lot of hopefully some good recipes. But it's really about um, how much that place meant to me and 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 wanting to sort of say thank you to the street and the people and the team and and, and my family and everyone that was was a part of it. All right, I want to try to figure this out because you, you said a bunch of stuff before we got into the specifics of the pancakes about. I'll send you the recipe. Yes, you will. Thank you. I'll take it and I'll do it. And I'll send you pictures of me. Do you have a scale at home? Because you have uh-huh. to weigh everything. Yeah, we can weigh stuff. Okay. We we will weigh stuff. Okay. Um, you should weigh stuff. Well, how, what do you think we do with the cocaine, man? You got if you don't have a scale, how are you gonna have an operation the size that I am running? You, you have need a, so you have a triple beam. Yeah, yeah you okay, need that's this. fine. You need the that's scales, fine. but um, and I'll clean it. I mean, I'll clean it well before I serve man, the it looks pancakes baking powder and to know, the kids. It'll it'll be okay. No, but. Um, I have a big issue in my field of endeavor with prescriptive advice 
about like what a screenplay should be when people like teachers, fake teachers, basically, you know, people who just go like, well, I've looked at screenplays and this is kind of what it is. And it seems to me like, you know, these are the, the rules that were written down without anyone understanding what really went into them. And it's what you had a problem with in your world, which was these rules without anyone going like, well, wait, why? Be, be, because to me, it has to start. I, I've said this um, right at the beginning of the, when I started this podcast. A lot of it was about why people do what they do. I can't write um, even an episode of television without understanding why I'm writing it, what it's about, why the characters are doing what they're doing. Then we can talk about the form that it should take. But in each of these things, you, there has to be a reason why something works. Yes. And this is what you were trying to discover. Yes. The how has been out there for from centuries, you know, for centuries. But the why has is is not. We have we know more today than we did yesterday, and we know more yesterday than we did twenty years ago, and we knew more twenty years ago than we did about forty years ago. And after that, it's literally like the dark ages. It's like the dark ages. That's not to say good, delicious food isn't being made, but not a lot of learning is happening. Not a lot of knowledge. And how did is you start to realize it? Like when you were in the kitchen at Jean Georges, they weren't really taking. They were making things better, as you said. He was cooking incredibly good food in a way that Creative was food. fresh and different. It was yeah. different, you know, presented in different ways. Yes. I mean, uh, it's funny. Um, Nobu was doing the same thing across uh, the country. A hundred percent. And I, for me, that was the mind blowing food experience. The first time I went to Matsuhisa, all, all that stuff. All it was like in... I, I couldn't even understand how the, how I'd been eating everything I'd been eating before I walked into Matsuhisa. Yeah. Because suddenly things were different but i don't even think he was thinking about the why in the way right he was like oh i went to i went to um peru i, li I lived in peru yeah, and i figured out i have this idea that you could take these elements these acidic elements and you could apply them to this stuff and it'll suddenly be great and he was right he i mean yeah he, he changed food for sure yeah. But how did you start thinking about why do you remember when you started thinking yeah i remember about it? not understanding like being able to find answers to questions. I was looking for answers to questions. But when you opened your own joint or when you were working for other people? Well, at the tail end of 71 Clinton Fresh Food, uh, I was asking questions and there just weren't that many answers out there. You were asking questions like, why is this the way we roasted? Why do we put the butter under the skin? Like, were you asking yeah. those, like, why, why is the thing to put butter under the skin and, you know, in the cavity put these things? Like, why do we do that? Are we, are we sure that that's going to infuse the flavor we want. Well, I mean, it's like everyone, you still can turn on certain channels on your television and someone will say to you, sear a steak to seal in the juices. That's completely wrong. That's 100% not what happens when you sear a steak. How, how did you figure this out? Well, because I wanted to read more about, okay, searing a steak seals in the juices. Where did TV chef or non-TV chef... X, Y, and Z find that information. What is that based on? Well, it's based on some sort of like dogma that's not true because the more you go to look for information, you can't find any. There's a lot of it. There's some out there. I mean, again, that's what, what we, we realized quickly was that there was information out there. There were these scientists that started in the early, late 80s, early 90s that were trying to explain things. One of them famously said, we know more about the surface of Mars than the inside of a souffle. Right. And 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 they, they were curious. And that information became usable, most, most interesting to chefs. Was it um, hard for you at the beginning <laughs> of this pursuit? Like when you would ask questions of, say, a chef you were working for or... Your coworkers, were you um, able to enlist them quickly in trying to solve these things with you? Were you 
told to shut up? Well, like, I was, what? How I was, was it? I was lucky that the chef de cuisine at JoJo's, and then he became the opening chef de cuisine at John George, was was amenable to these kinds. He liked having these kinds of conversations. Um, and he didn't always have the answers. He had some answers, but he was okay with me asking. Um, but then when I was on my own, there was nobody could tell me to shut up and go back to work because I was in charge, you know? And how so, did you decide to take the leap and open your own joint? Like what well, happened? Well, I always, once I started working in restaurants, I knew that the end game was my own restaurant. Um, I, I'm probably just one of those people that isn't well suited to work for other people. Me too. Um, and, and that's all fine. And I was, how did you know that? I, you know, again, I think that that's... Uh, you I, always knew it. You always knew eventually I'm going to work for myself? Yeah. Like you knew your name. You just knew like, I'm not a, I, I'm not a co- uh, person who can operate um, trying to um, pursue someone else's agenda. I have to set the agenda. Yeah. I, I wanted to have my own restaurant. That's really all I wanted was to have my own restaurant. Um, once I started cooking, I was like, I can't wait till the day I get my own place because this is... This is awesome. Were you good at cooking right away? Like, did were your skills? So there was the team part. You did well, really well in culinary school. Were you good at like figuring out how to make something delicious quickly? Um, and did you care right away whether people enjoyed it? You know, I've always believed that there's kind of like two two types of athletes, right? There's Michael Jordan, sort of. God just woke up and said, "Go do whatever you want. You can play ultimate frisbee." You know, you can be the mini golf champ of the world, or you can be the, but you're going to be so much better than everyone else. Or there's Larry Bird. You know, I'm a garbage man, but I'm going to crush you with my willingness to outwork you, right? Larry Bird was willing to work harder than everybody in the room. And so he made himself on the same, virtually the same level. And and I think I'm probably more of a Larry Bird kind of guy. There are people that I've 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 had the the, the good fortune of cooking with or even worked for me, and I look at them and I go, that guy or that girl is a natural. There's a there's a poise, a grace. There's you know, I had this one guy he worked for me, he was Swedish and it never looked like he was doing anything. He never looked frazzled. He never he just had this flow about him and it was just like fuck, man, so good. And he you know, and he was quiet and calm and clean and organized. And I got quiet and calm and clean and organized because I knew that's what I had to work at. So I, I know to answer your question, I don't think that I was immediately better than the you guy next you had to drive. me. Can I just say, yeah. I think that that Larry Bird, Michael Jordan thing, while um, I understand it is actually a bit of a canard. It turns out right. I think that bird is six, nine and a half and was actually imbued with a lot of stuff. And Jordan was short and had to work really hard. I understand what you mean, but in fact, like, because that you've walked into your your baseball is my NBA and so like it's I think it's I, I the point is a really great point um, that like Jimmy Connors it turns out we made a documentary about Jimmy Connors it didn't come naturally to him he had to correct like correct. he and had could, to force it you could find it so you were I mean, he, we could say Jimmy Connors versus McEnroe yeah, sure. or Borg yeah I, I, I love I Jimmy, would go Borg yeah because, or Mac is a great idea no Mac is perfect because Mac was a gift the level of gift he would. Say, he was just he, everyone who I talked about. He worked less hard than everyone else. Correct. He was just better than everybody. Correct. Automatically, you know, Jordan was cut from his tenth grade team, so like it was a different. He was. He yeah. Was cut okay. From his but I still, team. I still think it was a matter of time. You know, it was a matter of time before he came into it. And but he could have given up. Okay, we're splitting hairs here. I yes. think. I think, as you said, canard or no canard, I think it's a valid argument. Yes, it is. It's a great. It was made relatively eloquently by a cook. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Well. Uh, but the point is you were somebody who decided like you were going to just fucking kill for it. 
Yeah, I started. I mean, when I went to go work at JoJo's, I immediately said, "Like anybody wants a day off or a vacation, I'll take it." All right, that's amazing. I'll take it. Really? I'll, yeah, I was like, anybody that I'm allowed to, like, huh. you know, I wasn't allowed to do certain things, you know, because I was just starting. But I was like, anybody wants, I'll take it. Like, chef, if anyone wants a day off, and those, I don't need a day off. I don't. I don't care. And those kitchen jobs are impossible too. I, I mean, it's really hard, long grinding work. There, there's, there. I, I, I mean, I love that grind that's awesome awesome. so much so much i never had a problem with it i mean i'm paying for it now it hurts to touch my toes and things like that you know my back is messed (laughs) up and things but like i i i I was so happy in those days of grinding you know i was so so happy and um did people take you up on it and say go ahead Oh, there were times, yeah, when people wanted, like, yeah. I mean, I missed my best friend's wedding. I was like, I'm not coming. I got to work, you know. And and I I just was like, I was singular in in my it's amazing in my desire to continue my education. That's what it was. Like, I knew what I didn't know, and I knew that if the more I worked, the faster I would get closer. Well, you're never going to get to the end. That's the wonderful thing about cooking, and maybe about making movies and TV. I don't know. Is that there? You'll never know anything everything. So it's, it's wonderful. Like I go to work every day knowing that I can learn something new today if I try. And I try to make sure that that's what happens. And again, even though I'm just making donuts, I'm making better donuts today than I was last week and better donuts last week than I was the day we opened. And, and, you know, I've changed a donut recipe 43 times. No, that makes total sense to me. And it drives my staff absolutely bonkers. But at the end of the day, uh, that to me is what gets me excited is, is learning. I get excited about learning. And so did you, so you start at, at your, I know you had a period of year, a couple years in Vegas or how long in Vegas? It might've felt like a couple of years, but it was six months. Six months where you, you told me when we were hanging out that, um, you basically got to live in a room. I just like it cause it's a fun Vegas story that you got a room no one knew you had essentially yeah i mean i I was hired as part of the opening crew for i worked at the bellagio and where Um, is this in the chronology of your career like right before you opened your restaurant i had been i worked for john george for about six years and i had left because there was really nowhere else to go i'd been this the sous chef at at john george proper from the day like when it i didn't open it as a sous chef but i'd been this i was a sous chef for some time and i didn't i didn't foresee myself becoming I didn't even dream of thinking, well, I'll stay until I made the chef, because that didn't cross my mind. I was like, I'm the sous chef. I've been the sous chef. I've ridden this ride all the way to the end, and I left. And uh, I went to a bachelor party in Las Vegas for one of my awesome. one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, from high school, I went. It was we were in Vegas for his bachelor party. Um, and and about a month later, JG called me up. He's like, I'm opening a restaurant in Vegas, and I need someone to help me set it up. Will you go for a month? And I, I, and I was like, the bachelor party, the fun, the madness was so fresh in my mind. You forgot you'd be stuck in a kitchen? Well, no, it was for a month. And he was yeah, going to pay sure. me my sous chef salary. I keep my apartment at home. He's going to put me up in a hotel. Great. Go for a month. No problem. Just get me open. Sure, I'll do it. One month turned into three months. After three months, they said, we'd like to make you the chef to cuisine. We, you know, renegotiate your contract, blah, blah, blah. Will you stay? Happy to stay. Let's do another three months, and then we'll see where you are. I said, great. The whole time, like, everyone that was there for that month opening was supposed to get a room in the hotel. And then you either left and went back to wherever you came from, or you stayed, and you moved out and got a got an apartment. And sure. no one said 
hey, Wiley, it's time to move out. So I didn't raise my hand and say, should I move out yeah, today? Yeah, kick me out of my hotel room. No, no. I had a hotel room with two beds in it, which is a miracle. So, like, everybody could come. and My dad came and spent a week with me. Awesome. Friends came. It was, so, like, so So I went I went crazy. And, and I stayed for six months. And I had, again, a, a wonderful, great experience. Learned a lot. Learned a ton. It was my first chef's gig. And did you... and. So you were running the kitchen. I was the chef in the kitchen, yeah. And were you putting out food? Did he? Did John George make the menu up with you? He no, he made the menu up. Um, I was running. Spe- would, I, was, would I would refine- do specials. I would do specials and things like that. And would you run the specials through him? Or no, you- no, I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that. I mean, I had a. I've always wondered how that I had worked. an executive chef, Kerry Simon. Um, sure. You know, R.I.P. God rest is a great man. Um, and he was the executive chef, and so I would you know talk to him. But even he was. I mean, I was doing food. I had been in the John George. Yeah, for six program years. for six years. So I was of all people who wasn't going to deviate. I mean, I was getting in trouble with the staff out there because I wouldn't change a thing. Like I was like, "This is how we do it in New York. I'm not. I'm not going to move it a nanometer off of." The- yeah, you're going to carry out chefs. Oh, vision, to, to a fault. I mean, they changed everything once I left. You know, because I was driving people nuts. And so you came back, and is that when you opened? Um, well, while I was out there, I had the opportunity to meet John Louis Paladin, who um, I. I left, I ultimately left Las Vegas to come help him open up his first and, and only New York restaurant. Um, and what was that restaurant called? Uh, it was called Paladin. Um, but it, that was a tough time for him. Um, it, he was like a real hero of mine. And, and I don't an remember that restaurant. I might have missed that chef. restaurant. What year was that, do you think? That was 2001. Oh, I know. I was away. I was away a lot of that year. And I mean, he was, he's, you know, one of the greatest chefs to ever come out of France and one of you know the great chefs to be in America of all time but it was a, a tough time for him he was going through a lot of uh, just tough times and so um, he wasn't there a lot and did, didn't get a lot out of him and so I left after about three months because the opportunity to work with my dad at 71 Clinton provided itself and so I just felt like this isn't what kind of what I hoped it was going to be. Um, I don't really talk about it too, too much because I only spent three months there, so it's not something I put on my resume. I mean, but you did I haven't had to have a resume. Three, of course, but, you don't have a resume. You're a legend. But so you, <laughs> you, you did that. Then you worked at Clinton Street, and then you finally opened WD50. Correct. And when you were thinking of launching the restaurant, did you know, um, okay, it's going to have this tone, this voice, this point of view right away? Um, well, I mean, I knew I wanted to do fine dining. I, I, I'm a fine dining guy. I come from fine dining. I, I cut my teeth in fine dining. I learned how to cook in the fine dining atmosphere. I just wanted to bring fine dining downtown. I'm not a, I'm not a midtown guy. Look at me. But you, um, but, but although you, I may end up in midtown again, you never know. But I came from midtown. That was always a joke. Like, you know, we would talk about at 71 or at WD, like, you're going to midtown this thing up for us right here. That's and, funny. You know? But did you? Uh, that might be something I have to start saying on set to people. Don't midtown this up. But yeah. did, did did you um, did you know you were going to do? So fine dining is one thing, but then you know you changed the way people thought about fine dining, and that the way you presented the food and the sort of um, the whimsy that went along with it, whimsy in the way Adria did it. So like the the sort of. Uh, you know, you would serve an egg in a quite a different way than anyone else would or something that looked like an egg. So how did you s- decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to swing this big? I, that's not as clear to me how that happened. I think that, that that's just part of some sort of um, 
find journey and finding yourself and finding how you want to express yourself. The learning part is independent from the way you express that knowledge. That's brilliant and true. Yes. You know, well, but you were learn. Yeah, you learn for a long but time. But that information is out there for everyone to use, whether you want to make an, a, a poached egg with an edible shell and deep fried hollandaise, or like I said, you just want to make a roast chicken that isn't dry or mashed potatoes that aren't lumpy. Like it's, it's universal. It's any chef, in my opinion, should want this information to understand what's happening to their food as he or she cooks it. What you then do with that knowledge and how you decide to express yourself is totally up to the individual. But how did you decide? Like, I don't do you know. Remember draw- were you drawing it? All the time. So drawing it all the time. So this is important. Like I mean, my were- mother's a graphic designer. Okay, my so- dad was, 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 still is a jack of all trades. And I had a very eclectic, I had two eclectic homes that I grew up in and design and visuals were important. And we're also in the middle of a city, a great major city. But no one had done it. Look, it's important to talk. To, I think it's important to talk about the fact that people should go look at the pictures of your food online. Like people who listen to this show who don't know, you know, who, who haven't come to New York, who haven't weren't at your restaurants. Like um, you changed. They should watch videos of, of, of your food. And because, you know, you did this magnificent thing, man. You, you did more Miles Davis. So like that was you were Miles Davis in that you took a form and you understood the form, right? You worked in the classical version of the form, and then you, on your own, changed the form and uh, well, it presented was, it differently. Well, it was important not to be not to copy other people. That was a that was a, a really uh, I I didn't have a lot of rules, but that was a rule. Like you know, we have to be aware of what other people are doing. You know, I remember when I was. Uh, the working that summer job and and I was even then my mom gave me this cool little metal journal that I would write ideas down and I remember writing down in it a chocolate cake with a, a with a liquid center wouldn't it be cool if you got a chocolate cake and you broke it open and it had a liquid center fast forward like a year and a half later I go to work to John George and I'm like wow you are not smart you do not know what's going on out there man like you had an idea that someone else had Years ago, like chocolate cake. Yeah, Yeah, like you need to get hip to what's going on. You need to find out that that's already out there. Like that's you need to become more a better. You need to be a better student of your craft. You were pushing yourself to know to know what's going on because well because you shouldn't have ideas at some. I mean it's okay. It's cool, right? Not everybody thought the world was round at the same time. In fact some very famous people had it hundreds of years apart from each other and because transportation wasn't so good back then they didn't you know they weren't able to share that knowledge and it's and it that's that's good that means you're thinking but you should also be aware of what's out there so that you don't repeat it so you know if i would have put a molten chocolate cake on the menu i and thought i was hot shit that would have been a terrible like judgment error on my part so that that's what it was about it was like let's make sure that what we do and cooks would come to me and say, hey i've got this idea and i, was, and I would call him out and be like come on man you just had dinner last night at that restaurant wow come on don't do that to us don't do that to yourself well you know take that idea and what what can you get out of that so that's fascinating because tosi christina tosi told me you know that um she doesn't think she would have become who she became if it weren't for you asking her these kind of deep questions she she said that you know you you changed her life she'll give me a job someday she um all of us, like yeah, everybody. <laughs> we'll all she be. dominates the whole world. But she did say that um, that you asked her questions about why she wanted to do what she wanted to do. That forced her to find a way to do her own thing and express herself in food and in, in the baking in what she does and helped her to become the inventive 
you know, the, this incredible groundbreaking baking person. Um, did you know you could lead in that way? Did you, was, did it become important to you early on? Did you grow that in yourself? I think so. I mean, I think I, I I've gone at this point from wanting to be, I'll give you some basketball there because you're a basketball guy. I've grown from being the guy who was like, I want the ball to take the last shot to being like, I still want to win the game so badly. You have no idea how badly I want to win. Sure. But I don't have to be the guy who takes the shot, but I want to win as much as the person on the other side or anywhere around me. So yeah, part of that was learning how to not be like wanting. If someone's like, open under the hoop and then you're down by one, give them the ball under the hoop and let them score. Well, but I was the star. I had my chance at, I, and I took those shots. I missed a bunch. I made a bunch. And now, you know, I, now I'm more of like the coach and the leader and the guy that's, that's helping us all get somewhere you know, and I'm the one that's saying like, yeah, you, you might be the best donut maker or you might be the best fish cook or you might, you know, make the best desserts. But like, I'm going to help us all figure out how we can, you know, it, it, the ideas don't necessarily start with me, but they end with me. All right. I have one question for all of the, I'm going to listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people. Are you struggling to get some shut-eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut-eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I have limited time. I'm a writer, primarily, a uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. How in the crazy frenetic sort of um, day-to-day of that stuff, though, did you... Find the time, for instance, to say to Christina, who was in your organization, like, hey, you should be thinking about this for yourself. Like, that grooming of people isn't just to win. It's a really, like, deep thing, right? Because if you did it for her, I know you must have done it, asked those questions to 50 people, because that's the nature of someone who does that stuff. So was growing these people important, consciously important to you? Yes, yes. I mean, wanting wanting to create a positive work environment where people could 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 think and really ask all kinds of like constantly be in a state of asking questions like you know christina great example right she was one of the we you had the flatbread at wd50 it was these boxes of lavash right that people would eat 
voraciously. And the whole idea was, okay, we, we've got a massive pastry program, right? Like we've got a seri- we have a pastry chef, we have a pastry department. So you got to get people to order dessert, but you also got to give people bread. You have to give people bread. So let's give them the lightest possible bread imaginable. Sure. So we gave them this lavash and people would eat a box of it. And they wouldn't say, oh, I don't feel like having dessert. Like in the old days, you go to a French restaurant and I'm guilty of it. French, fresh loaves of bread or rolls. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I just have three bites of dessert. I wanted people to have, so like she could pull lavash so fast, so fast. And she was just looking at how to pull, what can I do to pull it faster? How can I make it quicker than, than the, the person next to me? Or what, how can I do it better? And it was just sort of my job to, to get those people to feel like that they were in a position or enable them, like give them all the tools they need to succeed. Anybody, what do you have? What don't you have that you need? What do you, what, like what, you know, what equipment do we not have here that would help you do your job better? You know, all of these things. I yeah, want to give people the tools wants at a bo- I mean, necessary to succeed. in a you manager know? or a boss, yeah. And yeah, but on the flip side is I'm going to push you so hard. I'm going to push you so hard. You know, and, and, and but again, I think it's that idea, right? Like Sisyphus, you push that rock up the hill every day and you wake up and you come back in and the rock's at the bottom of the hill. So how do you do that without going crazy? Well, yeah, I read you, that you said this. I read that you said that um, Sisyphus, you know, you have to be Sisyphus with a smile on your face. Yeah. But the point of that thing is it's a curse. It's the curse of Sisyphus. He, the idea is Sisyphus wasn't smiling. You somehow convinced yourself. Well, Camus, actually, it was Camus' idea. Camus said, he talked about the mysticism. I stole that from Camus, who's a much smarter man than me. What book of Camus is that? Do you oh, remember? Oh, jeez. I knew you were going to ask me that. I don't... Can no, we talk about, like, the five mother sauces or something yeah, that fine. I know? No, because The Stranger and The Plague are, like, two it, of my favorite books I think books it's in The Stranger. Time. I think it's in The Stranger. All right, stranger. back he, to The Stranger He, he talks about, if you're going to do that, you have to imagine doing it with a smile on your face, otherwise you will go insane. There's, there's, there becomes this lunacy and craziness to your job. All right, let's all that, have anyway. a stranger. You know what? These times I've been wanting. I, I used to read the stranger like um, once a year or so, and I probably haven't read it in four years. So let's all read the stranger. Let's start. <laughs> let's start April first on April Fool's Day, and like anyone who wants to read the stranger and then tweet about it together. Let's do it because the world we're living in now makes a lot of sense to read. It's that. getting stranger. Let's read that. It's one of the greatest books ever, and I don't remember that. Um, I don't remember him saying that, but I love it. Uh, all right, I have a couple more questions for you as we get to the end here. Um, so, whenever someone tries to do something new or puts so much of themselves into something, they risk a kind of humiliation. You know, when you try to do a new thing, like I always think of Barton Fink saying, I tried to show you something beautiful. Barton Fink was a, a hack and that the joke of that is he actually wasn't really an artist. But all of us have some Barton Fink in us when we try to show them something beautiful. You yes. know, how do you gird yourself with the making yourself that vulnerable? You know, when you show the best of yourself, it's scary. Is oh, it still man. We got so much shit at WD fifty. Yeah, there was a time when you had to wait online if you wanted to say something horrible about us. Like it was, <laughs> it was a waiting list. It yeah. was like so. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing, right? New York was always clamoring for the newest thing, and we gave them something new and different, and everybody was like, "Whoa, what is this? We don't like it at all. It sucks." It and how sucks. did you deal with it, man? I told everybody we're going to put our heads down and we're going to stay the course. Did it hurt your feelings? Not really. Why? Um. You knew it was good. Did you have did were there people you trusted who told you this is good? Um, I believed in what we were doing and I believed that look, I I'm not going to tell you that we didn't serve some bad dishes, that we didn't have some bad ideas. Well, you all do, yeah. But they 
were not for lack of trying, and they were they were not gen- they were genuine. They were one hundred percent genuine. We believed that what we were serving you was good. I can look back and say, you know, I don't think that that was the best dish, um, and and maybe we were but wrong. But I would I wouldn't say like, oh, everybody hates this dish. Let's leave it on to spite them. You would examine it. Of course. That's the key thing with criticism. First, to just find, get to where your feelings are gone and you can go, is that valid criticism? If it is, let me change it. If it's not, keep going. Yeah, and we decided to stay the course. And that made, you know, years two, three, four, and five really hard for us. Um, but Because you didn't want to just uh, do, oh, hey, this stuff all works. You want to keep pushing. I wanted to keep doing what we had, you know, I wa- we had set a course. I wanted to stay on that course. And- uh, you did get some. I un, I remember reading and uh, when people would occasionally give you shit, but mostly people loved it and were amazed by what you did. And you have all these sort of people who've come in your wake now who consider you like the godfather of a kind of a movement. You know, I was P- watching Pincushion. I was watching. Sure, I was watching Chang's show, which I love, Ugly Delicious. And and Renee, how do you pronounce Renee's last name? Redzepi. Renee Redzepi, and he. We're talking, and, and Renee said that one of the things is that chefs used to hoard ideas, hold on to them, but now, like, best practice and best ideas seem to be shared. So do you feel like you're one of the people who contributed to that idea? Hey, let's share this information. Let's not, let's get it out there. Yeah, and do you I, think it's true that people share more? Um, I mean, right? I was I was certainly privy to the to the. You know, I even worked for certain chefs who were like, I, I'm not going to give you that recipe yet. You know, you haven't been here long enough. I'm not going to give you that recipe yet. Um, and, you know, we were tried to be, you know, there were there were people that would come. We had a rule. If you wanted to do a stage at the restaurant, you had to come for five days. Because we, early on, people would come for a day or two. And all they would do is fill their notebook with stuff and then we'd never see them again. They were clearly coming to to get stuff from us. You would let someone only do five-day stage? So I sat the staff down and I said, guys, th- these people are helping us, Right. But there's a point at which, after a day or two, they're not helping us. They don't know where anything is. How long should we make the minimum? What's right. the minimum? Right. And the staff, we voted. We said, how about five days? If you want to come, you can stay forever. But if you want to come, the minimum is five days. And you would not believe how much pushback we got from people who were like, but I've only got two days off. I work five days a week. I've got two days off. Can you gotta I want it. You got to want it bad enough. Can I come two days this week, two days the next, and to the next, I'll give you six days? No, because five days means five days in a row. Well, but I can Look, man, that's it. That's the deal. And, you know, it ended up it, it ended up upsetting a lot of people. I still run into people this day who are like, you know, I really wanted to stash you, but I couldn't because I, I couldn't do five days and I don't understand. And I got other people like, you know, that's really, that's awesome that you did that. And my st- it was like, well, this is, we voted, you know? But if someone came into the five days, they... They saw everything. They got to understand They got a it. lot, but they weren't useful until about day three. Sure, of course. Because they didn't know where anything was. They were scared. They were, ter- you know, and it, my staff just spent all this time fixing their mistakes. So if that's the case, give me a couple more on the backside. I just learned something. I thought you had to go, I guess because I watched that documentary about the Ilbuli stage program where it seemed like you had to go for a couple months. Well, we, I mean, we, if people wanted to do that, we were, we're happy to have that. But so it, I think that sharing ideas is, is great. And yes, I mean, we, we wanted people to, we were okay with people coming and, and, and seeing what we were doing. And for us, we was, we wanted to know what all the other people were doing and we just didn't want to copy it. We didn't want to serve what someone else was serving. But I, yeah, I mean, I think it's important that we share ideas. I do. I think it's really, it's, you know. Again, the Socratic method, right? We're going to get the ball. 
we're going to we're going to get farther if we all collectively try to figure something out rather than if we're doing it in a bubble. All right, just two more things. One, so like Chang's standard is deliciousness. That's like the only thing he's come to in his life now, and it could shift again, but sort of what it looks like doesn't matter at all. You see you, I mean your donuts are we're living in a good age for donuts. I think there are some good donuts around. Your donuts are the best donuts, but also they're the most beautiful. And they're beautiful by like um, a very clean standard, meaning they're not so adorned. They just are incredibly inviting, incredibly clean looking, and um, the colors are perfect and the way that you box them is aesthetically perfect. Has that... Uh, was that equally important to you that the that it was as aesthetically pleasing as it was delicious? No, it has to be a great donut first. But I don't see why I can't the same way a plate can be a canvas, a donut can't be a canvas. Um, for me, for anyone. But I, um, <clears throat> I certainly understand the notion of ugly delicious and respect the notion of ugly delicious. Um, I kind of think it should, it sounds better when you say ugly, delicious, but delicious and uh, like delicious is first. Ugly shouldn't be first, but I get what he's saying. And, 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 and for him and for all of us, I mean, even whatever we did, it was like, how does it taste? Okay. It tastes great. Now, can we have some fun with the way it looks? Yeah. And everyone should try Dew's Donuts. They are truly spectacular. And, um, I wouldn't have you on the show if I didn't think so. They're getting better. How that's well, that's the mark of who you are, right? You're not going to stop. You're going to continue to try to make them better. But can we talk about the the closing of WD fifty and how you dealt with it? Because you know, I often will tell myself to just judge a thing that I do based on whether I executed the vision that was in, Dave and I. It's the two of us, but whether we executed the vision that was in our heads, not whether it's commercially successful or what other people. But if if right, because the hardest thing is to actually get for me onto paper and then onto the screen that feeling that was in my head right so i have to decide that it's a success if i get that to happen on a certain level and regardless of the other kind of success or failure so how did you process the ending of wd50 are you okay with it are you okay with the legacy of it do you have any regrets about it do you wish you were still doing it i would be perfectly happy if W50 was still open and we were serving food, um, you know, to enough people to keep it open uh, every day. I loved the team. I loved the process. I loved the people. I loved everything about that place. Um, I, I, I think it's probably run its course, um, but I am very proud. You know, my father and I set out to do something, and I think that we certainly accomplished that goal. We created something special. We created a place where people could learn. Like, like I can, I can see it on so many different levels, but on the most basic level, I wanted it to be a place where people could learn and I wanted to leave the industry better than I found it. And I think we did. I think we were part, I think we added to the dialogue. That's all, you know, again, make a difference. Like, did we make a difference? I believe that we did. I believe that we helped move the ball down the road in a way. And so that's all I would want. Well, I have to say, um, I hope you decide to do like food again beyond donuts, like that you decide to do a restaurant again. Um, my admiration for you is like uh, pretty much unmatched as far as somebody who put stuff on a plate that just blew my mind. You know, um, I would go to Alder, your second restaurant, 
and which I we talked about was in a, a place that maybe wasn't the the greatest location for a place like that. But I would go there sometimes, and I couldn't believe that in a presented in a simple room that wasn't very adorned, in a very casual sort of a manner, was this my every bite was totally mind blowing, and I want people to be able to experience that again. They should buy your cookbook because they'll get a sense of it if they have the time and energy to cook that stuff. But, um, you know, dude, you're a genius at it. So, like, I, I hope you'll, like, get it up to take another big swing. Well, you know, m- maybe we will. Like, like, I think there's a few ideas left in the tank, and uh, we'd like to find our way back to restaurants. It's something that we love. All right, between now and then, folks, go to Two's Donuts. Wiley, thanks so much. Uh, for being here and being open and, and talking. I really appreciate it. Wiley's on social media, active on Instagram. What's your name on there? Is it just your name? Uh, Wiley Dufresne, yeah. There's an S in his name, so figure it out. Uh, I'm at Brian Kopman on Twitter. You can write me the moment, bk at gmail.com. You can argue the case that uh, Jordan is pure talent and Larry Bird is pure work. If you want, <laughs> I'll argue back, um, and I'll give you like lots of stats. Okay, everybody, thanks. See you next time. Thank you.